Hello and welcome to the Career Explorations and Genomic Medicine Research Podcast. This program is sponsored by the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Program for Precision Medicine and Healthcare. This Career Explorations program is aimed at undergraduate students. Our goals are to help you expand your knowledge of potential careers related to genomic medicine research. And we hope to increase your understanding of what you will need to do to become a member of the genomic medicine research workforce. We also want to help you build a supportive network of professionals. Each episode of this podcast series presents a conversation with a researcher or clinician who works in a particular aspect of genomic medicine research. Thank you. Now we'll turn the floor over to Dr. Falomi, and she'll tell us about her uh, journey to her career path and her day-to-day life. <laughs> thank you. Really nice to meet you all, and thank you for, um, I guess, inviting me to join your discussion today. I'm happy to to be here and see all of your smiling faces from different locations, probably at home, like myself. Um, and um, so I am currently a um, assistant professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, in the genetics department. And I also hold a secondary appointment in the nutrition department. Um, I am a geneticist by training. Um, but I specialize in something called developmental programming. Um, And that's the idea that events that occur during development can affect your your long-term health trajectory. Um, And so we're trying to understand how genetics and epigenetics and environment sort of contribute to your developmental um, environment in a way that um, contributes to not just your chronic disease risk, but potentially your children's chronic disease risk, and so on and so on. And so um, there's lots of evidence that um, these events during development can affect people um, multi-generationally. And so we primarily work with mouse models, um, but I do have some studies um, with human um, samples. Um, And um, how did I get to where I am right now? Um, With a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, (laughs) but also fun along the way. (laughs) So um, I think we often uh, talk about how challenging it is to get to um, the position of a faculty, um, and especially at a university like UNC, which has a very high reputation in research. Um, And last time I checked, genetics is number four in the nation um, for genetics department. So it's a really highly ranked university and highly ranked department. And so it was very challenging to to get here, but um, I took a very traditional path. Um, I know lots of people take um, untraditional paths, but mine was very traditional. I did a uh, bachelor's um, like many of you in biology um, at Penn State University in, Happy Valley in Pennsylvania. And um, there was a genetics option, which meant that my electives as a genetic, as a biology student could be in genetics classes. And I jumped on that because I was always very interested in heritability and trying to understand how do traits get passed from parent to child, which believe it or not, we still don't fully understand how that happens. Um, and I thought that was fascinating and I wanted to do that, um, at that point, maybe as a career, but really just, you know, looking into what I could do with it. Um, and I think one of the key elements of my trajectory, career trajectory was really the research that I did and the laboratory experience that I got along the way. And that started as an undergraduate. So For those of you interested in doing research, I strongly encourage you to do some research as an undergrad as much as you can um, in multiple labs, if you can, working with different types of models or different types of studies, because that was what sort of shaped my focus in the end was being able to do different things and say, hey, I don't like this, but I like this. Um, And so my very first research experience um, was not something that I was fully interested in, but it was working in a malaria laboratory um, in at Emory in Atlanta, Georgia, 
Um, and it was an opportunity that came around because my mother met someone at a fundraiser who happened to be a scientist and she knew nothing about research. And she said, Hey, there's a scientist person I met, please contact them. And, um, her name was Mary Galinsky and she gave me an opportunity. So keep your eyes and ears open for any opportunity that comes your way or could potentially come your way, um, and take advantage of it when it's there. Don't, don't overlook it or don't wait. Um, and so, yeah, so that was my first research experience was in a malaria laboratory um, and ended up getting uh, me a paper. Um, and while I used that experience to really learn that I wasn't, I was fascinated with malaria, but not really necessarily with the tools and the actual way that research was conducted. Um, and so I ended up doing um, another research experience as an undergrad in a fly laboratory in a Drosophila laboratory and he was studying innate immune response and looking at how genetic differences contributed to innate immune response in particular um, how uh, that, uh, how flies responded um, uh, uh, at the level of gene expression to um, different levels of bacteria in their gut and that was a actually really, really cool. And it made me realize I was really interested in genetics, right? I wasn't interested necessarily in a specific disease, but I was really interested in genetics. And I was really interested in how DNA sequence contributes to disease or contributes to phenotypes or traits. Um, and so because of that, I applied to several schools, um, one of them being Emory, and then also obviously to UNC Chapel Hill, where I ended up going for my PhD um, in genetics. And so I did a PhD in genetics and molecular biology at UNC from 2002 to 2007, which was um, a lot of fun, but very interesting. I was um, the only uh, student of color in my class, not just black student, but student of color, um, visible student of color, right? Um, and um, that had its own share of, of challenges. But it was interesting because at that time and the work that I was doing, it was very new. There weren't a lot of people, you know, doing hardcore um, mouse genetics and disease in the way that we wanted to do it. And so that was challenging in itself because we're sort of, you know, charting a new path, even in my discipline, um, which was a lot of fun, but also um, hard to do. And so after my PhD, or I would say during my PhD um, in genetics, I was thinking about what do you want to do next? And um, faculty, being a faculty member was always high on my list because I enjoy teaching, I enjoy mentoring. Um, and these are the things you kind of learn along the way, right? What do you like doing? What don't you like doing? Um, I liked research, I liked teaching, I liked training students in the lab. And so that seemed like a good fit for an academic career. Um, and really, I like to ask my own questions. And when I kind of shared that with my mentor, he said, you want to be a boss, you should go and get a postdoc um, and pursue an academic career, which I still didn't know anything about, even from the PhD perspective. Um, it seemed very overwhelming. Um, it seemed very far out of reach because no one in my family had pursued that high level of education or to be a scientist just seems like something well out of our reach. Um, and, um, but I did it anyway, and I um, ended up doing my postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania, now back in Pennsylvania, um, and decided to study developmental epigenetics. And the reason I chose that um, topic um, was because um, as a person studying genetics, I realized that DNA sequence doesn't explain everything there is to know about disease and about heritability. Um, and at that time, epigenetics was fairly new. Um, and most people were studying genomic imprinting, which is what I ended up studying. Um, and so for me, it was sort of adding a layer on to my expertise and taking me again in a new direction that would help me have a well-rounded career at the end. Um, and obviously all of these decisions I made, you know, with lots of introspection, but also with a lot of guidance from many, many, many mentors that I had along the way. Um, and people that, you know, I just asked, you know, how, how do you get this or how do I get to this point? Um, what are the tools I need? What are the relationships I need to make? Um, and what is the expertise I need to have? Um, and so while I was doing my postdoc, um, I started doing, um, 
more genetics, um, even though I was studying uh, developmental epigenetics, there's a component of it where we were making targeted mouse models and really looking at how genetic mutations in the mouse contributed to their epigenetic response. Um, and that sort of allowed me to develop an idea of what I wanted to do as a faculty member in my own research program. Um, and I was recruited back to UNC to be a faculty member in genetics. Um, now, I initially was recruited to the Nutrition Research Institute, which is in Kannapolis, North Carolina. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. And I spent the first four and a half years in Kannapolis developing a research program in nutrition um, and epigenetics. Um, and uh, then I transitioned up to Chapel Hill in 2017, and I've been here ever since then. And um, I think, you know, part of being a faculty member, as opposed to the other steps along that trajectory, are that um, you really get to drive your own independent research. So my day-to-day -day activities are really based on what I want to do, which can be a great thing if you're highly motivated and disciplined and organized, but it can also be really challenging if you have a lot of distractions um, or have trouble focusing, um, but there's always tools to deal with that as well. So um, I don't know if there's anything else I was supposed to cover, but that's kind of my um, career trajectory in a nutshell. And, I'm happy to answer any questions or hear any of your comments about what you guys are doing. What has been your biggest challenge in terms of um, your research? Oh, that's a good question. Um, the biggest challenge um, in terms of research, just two ways I can answer that. Honestly, the biggest challenge for me has been focus because there's so many different questions you can ask and when you're provided a space and you're provided some funding or you get funding, um, you have to decide how to use that effectively. And you have to choose what types of research questions you want to ask and how you want to answer them, because there's many different ways to answer the same research question. Um, and so focus is a big challenge for a lot of scientists because we like to ask questions and you can end up asking way too many questions. So I think one of the challenges for me that I'm actually, you know, reeling in right now is that I have one too many projects going on um, and getting them back to the point where I have just a couple that, that I can focus on because it's an incredible amount of work. Um, I think the other challenge in terms of research from a more practical standpoint has just been navigating the field. You know, I think that navigating different cultures, navigating different communication styles, learning how to communicate effectively with people that you don't, you didn't grow up communicating with, <laughs> um, learning how to navigate, you know, politics, um, learning how to navigate, you know, um, maybe challenges that you're having in the laboratory. So really a lot of, a lot of it to me is about learning how to communicate, learning how to network effectively. But that has been a challenge because um, this is, you know, not my native environment, I would say. Uh, so sometimes you feel a little bit like an alien in this environment, but you learn, you know, as you go, you learn more and more and more how to effectively, um, you know, survive and also thrive in this environment. Good question. Hi, I had a quick question. I know you touched on being with physically person of color in your app. Now, you might have touched on this before, but I was just wondering, like, what, what was some of your, like, best strategies to handle that situation? Um, hmm. Yeah, so, so um, I will give some background in that I actually grew up in Liberia in West Africa. My family's originally from New York, Brooklyn, New York, but... We moved to West Africa when I was about five, and then we came back here when I was about 15. So I was coming from a very, very, very different culture, not even an American culture. Um, my way of communicating was very different. I had an accent um, at times, and um, there were just things that were different, you know, that are culturally different. Um, I also came from a culture where there are black people all around me <laughs> and we're the majority. Um, and so things that are difficult to attain here, if you're a person of color 
are not difficult at all to attain there if you're a person of color. And so I had never, I'd known of those challenges because I did lots of history um, studies, um, but I had never personally faced that in my environment. Um, and I think the first time I faced that was, you know, as an undergrad in a majority white university. And many of you will face, you know, the same sort of challenges. But um, I think the biggest challenge was just learning the language, um, realizing that, you know, while there are some things that are directly intended to be negative towards you, most of the things are just a natural I don't want to say natural because it's not really natural, but are really part of a system, right? So it's not an intentional negativity towards you, but it's part of a system that has been propagated for a very long time and didn't include having to deal with people from other cultures. So um, I think some of the things I did was I really tried to, first of all, you know, assume that people were, had good intentions despite working in part of that system. And that helped a lot with not feeling constantly attacked. Um, and then in situations that were difficult um, to navigate, like a cultural difference about music or cultural difference about how I did my hair or how I dress, you know, those simple things can really impact you because as an undergrad, you know, you're still learning who you are, you know. Um, and I think I coped with that sort of by, you know, really maintaining a strong network of friends who were more like me. Um, but while also not isolating myself to just those friends, that was really important for me to learn about, you know, other cultures. Um, and so I was able to learn other cultures and learn how to communicate with other cultures and to live in a different culture. Um, and I think that was, that was probably the main, the main thing I did. So, so having a strong sense of, a strong support network, a strong group of people who do identify with you, but then also not isolating yourself from people who don't identify with you because they're learning from you just as much as you're learning from them. Um, and it is difficult and it is challenging, but it's necessary if you want to continue up the ladder. And certainly if you want more, you know, people of, of color to come after you and also succeed. So it's a good question. Thank you. That's really helpful. You're welcome. How would you say um, your work affects your lifestyle? Oh boy. <laughs> um, it affects it a lot. Um, and I think that, um, hmm, I will give a uh, specific. So um, my job, as I said, is a lot of it is up to what I make of it, right? Um, no one is cracking a whip. No one is forcing me to do anything. Um, at the end of the day, I say, yes, I want to do this or no, I don't want to do that. And so what that does is it gives you a lot of flexibility, um, meaning that um, if I want to have this meeting with you guys and discuss great things, but I want to take a break after this and go to Walmart for an hour and do my shopping, I can do that, right? Um, and so it gives me a lot of flexibility during the day um, and a lot of flexibility in setting my own schedule. Um, and so in that way, it's really great. It's a really great um, career path for people who want that kind of flexibility. On the other hand, if you want to be successful, you do have to put in some hard work and some long hours. Um, and I think that, you know, some people are better than others at um, being efficient when they're working so that they can put in a little less longer hours or they can compact the time, you know, over a course of a couple weeks and then have a couple weeks where they're a little less, um, less committed. Um, and so my lifestyle, I would say up until I was uh, a postdoc has, a lot of it has revolved around establishing my career and focusing on that. Um, and so um, I think that that is good in some ways because you can focus, but it's also bad because you kind of make your life take a back seat to, um, uh, to other things like work. Um, and so, um, you know, right now it's, it's kind of hard to, to answer that question because I'm thinking about, you know, different stages of your career, it's going to affect your lifestyle in different ways. And so if I was to speak about how it affects my lifestyle right now, um, you know, I think that 
you have to be willing to make some sacrifices um, around certain things that other people are doing. For example, if I have family members going on vacation, I can't always go with them, right? Because I might have a grant deadline. Um, and so a lot of the things that I do sort of revolve around um, what deadlines I have going on, whether I'm teaching at that moment, and how much of a commitment I have to put to work. Now that said, because there's flexibility in my schedule, if I properly manage my time, I can actually do those things and still go on vacation, but most people are really bad at managing their time and I'm particularly bad at it. So <laughs> I'm getting better, but I think that um, you really have to learn how to manage your time. You really have to learn how to protect your time or you can spend hours and hours and hours um, I definitely have days where I pull all-nighters to get a grant deadline in or to get a paper deadline in um, or to get my class finished so that I can teach a lecture, you know, sometime that week. Um, and then I have other days where I'm just like, I'm really tired. I'm going to take the day off and I just do it. You know, no one questions that. Um, and so pros and cons. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. And it looks like Anjali asked a question in oh. the chat. She said, can you talk more about how you handle multiple projects and about time management? <laughs> so I just said I'm really bad at it, but I'm getting better. Um, so one of the things I've learned how to do as a faculty member um, is really uh, block off my calendar and assign time to projects as they come. So schedule well ahead of time. So for example, if I know I have a deadline in October and it gets easier as you go and as you learn how much time it takes to complete a certain project. So in the beginning, it's really hard because you might have an experiment uh, or a grant that you've never done before and you don't know how long that's gonna take. You can estimate it, but you really don't know until you've done it. Um, but as you do more and more and more of that experiment or that grant or that paper, you can kind of estimate, hey, this is going to take me so many days or so many hours, and I need to block off this much time to do it. Um, and so I very strongly recommend and I highly use my calendar, and everything is on my calendar blocked off. Um, so I have days blocked off where they're just writing days. Um, I have days, times blocked off where I meet with the people in my lab to talk about projects. If I want to do an experiment myself, that goes on the calendar and the amount of time is blocked off and I try to devote only that amount of time to it. Um, and so time management, I think, works in different ways for different people. But what's worked for me is definitely using a calendar, um, setting boundaries on your time with other people because people will also suck your time. <laughs> Um, not making, you know, too many commitments to too many things. But um, if you do, don't, you know, be upset with yourself. Just don't do it the next time it comes around. Um, and really learning what you're capable of doing. And I think that changes as you age as well, because I'm learning as I get older, I get more fatigued quickly, right? So I may not have the same amount of stamina that I used to have when I was an undergrad and could stay up all night, three nights in a row. So if I pull an all-nighter on a grant now, I know I'm going to pay for that over the next two weeks um, because that's how long it takes me to recover at least. Um, and that helps me be more mindful of not procrastinating things till the end, getting things in blocks on my calendar. Um, so basically learning from my mistakes over time. Um, but yeah, I, I strongly recommend calendar blocking off stuff in your calendar and starting well ahead of time. And um, one of the other things I just recently learned in terms of time management is, um, you know, not recently, but over the last couple of years is, you know, don't say no when you can't do it. So I've been saying no a lot over the last couple of years because people will just continue to ask you until you say no. Um, and then not being afraid to give up on a project that you started if you really can't do it. Like if you can't do it and you won't put your best foot forward with that project, even if you've already committed to it, I try not to come out of things that I committed to. But if it means that I'm going to do 10 projects poorly and I could get rid of one project and do nine projects really well, I get rid of it. I pick, figure out which one is you know, going to be the least um, impactful 
and I just say, hey, I'm really sorry, I can't do this anymore. Um, it very rarely happens, but I have been doing that um, as well. But, um, but yeah, you have to get to know what, how much time you need for things um, and how much energy, right? Um, it's not just about the amount of time in the day, the amount of hours in the day. I went to a, a time management seminar once and it was basically, the guy said, well, you know, you have 24 hours in a day and you block off this much for sleep and you should be able to use all the other hours for pro productivity. And as you get older, <laughs> that's not really true. And certainly as you're exposed to different types of stress, right? Right now we're in a time of COVID, we're in a time of, you know, a lot of racial unrest. Um, and it's like, those are all different stressors that make you tired, they fatigue you. Um, and so you have to learn what your body's capable of and manage your time effectively. But, um, but yeah, blocking things off is the way to go. It was a very long answer, but hopefully helped. <laughs> I'll ask a question just to keep things going. Uh, could you talk to us about the tenure process and how um, do you prepare for it? And do you think the tenure process is beneficial for um, diversity and inclusion in faculty? Do I think it's beneficial? What do you mean by that? So some have said that because, uh, you know, faculty never retires, <laughs> that it might prevent bringing in new faculty members and that that might work against diversifying the faculty um, mm -hmm. body. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? And what do you suggest in preparing for a tenured track position? Wow. Um, yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about that. Um, so I, I'm glad you brought it up and explained it. Um, the tenure process is different at every university, um, and it's different, you know, there are some institutes that also have a tenure process, right? So not just academia. Um, so it's different. So I will speak for the tenure process um, for UNC and particularly for my department. Um, so at UNC, you come in and you have about two years, um, the first two years, you are, you know, um, it's usually kind of protected time for my department at least. And then you go up for reappointment. And so you submit sort of a mini packet of accomplishments, your CV. Um, and I think there's some other paperwork that you have to submit. Um, and you're basically in your, um, and first of all, think about tenure as kind of a um, probationary period, right? Um, so it's a really, really long probationary period. Um, and it's basically the university saying, we're going to give you this much time to prove that you are an asset to the department and you are an asset to your school and you are an asset to the university. And so I am in the genetics department, which is in the School of Medicine which is in the University of North Carolina. And I'm also in the School of Public Health through my appointment in nutrition. So I'm basically using that time to um, accumulate um, a set of metrics, whatever they are requesting, that prove that I am worthy of being in their university school and department long-term. And so think about it that way. It's like any sort of probationary period, but it's very, very long. And so it varies between five to six years. At UNC, um, at least in my department, it's five years. So you put your packet in at the end of year five. And then there's about a year-long review process of that packet. And then at the end of that year, they tell you whether or not you got tenure. Um, and if you get tenure, wonderful. Um, essentially, it means that you can get out of that probationary period and they can no longer let you go for no reason. They can still let you go for reasons, <laughs> but they can't just say, you know, up until that period, they could just say, hey, we're out of funding or hey, we don't like your research or hey, we don't like you, leave. Um, but after that, they do have to have some sort of formal reason for releasing you. And so that's why it's considered a protective um, state. Um, and so a lot of faculty that get into tenure will stay for a very, very, very long time into very old age. 
Um, and so, Lana, in answering your question about, you know, how it would affect underrepresented minorities, I actually have seen a trend recently of faculty retiring earlier than they used to. And so when I was a graduate student, it was very common to see faculty that were, you know, 80, maybe 90 years old, still in the lab, still holding on to their position. Um, and because your department will only have a certain number of positions to provide, those people took up positions that could potentially go to a new person. And I think that's what's, what, what Lana is talking about. Um, and so I see a lot more faculty retiring early. I have a lot more colleagues who are in their late, mid to late 50s, early 60s retiring, as opposed to 70, 80, which is what it used to be, um, because it is um, exhausting. <laughs> we have new stressors that are, you know, wearing us down. And I think they also recognize that people are more um, inclined to have other um, hobbies and other life interests now than when they used to. So I feel like a lot of the professors um, that I knew when I was a student, um, their life interest was research. Their hobby was research. Their family was, you know, their lab. And that's part of why they could stay until 70, 80, because they were doing, you know, their entire spectrum of interest um, every day. But now I find that people have a lot more diverse interests. And so they are retiring a little early, uh, earlier to pursue those things. And so um, I don't know if that means, you know, I don't, there's a lot of debate on whether we should get rid of tenure, um, whether it means anything anymore. I think it still does mean something. Um, I sometimes question whether it should, it should be revised. So not necessarily removed, but maybe revised in terms of how you get tenure and also, you know, what, that means because it there's not really a clear definition. So tenure, um, my understanding is that the whole tenure process came about because faculty were getting fired for um, being outspoken and going against the grain of the department. And so they established tenure um, so that you could have freedom of speech as an academic, which was supposed to be a very important part of being an academic is that you know, we're not bound by a product that we're creating, right, like industry, um, and we should be able to speak for or against or, you know, with regards to anything independently of what our institution believes and thinks. Um, and people were, there was some uh, retaliation for that. And so tenure was created so that after tenure, <laughs> so before tenure, you still don't have freedom of speech, but after tenure, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> so apparently that's, you know, that's part of the reason why it was created. Um, but yeah, I think it's, um, it's an interesting process. Um, there's a lot of boxes you have to check. Um, and the criteria for getting or proving yourself worthy is quite vague. Um, there's a pretty wide range of what is considered a worthy scholarly accomplishment for receiving tenure. And that's my biggest issue with it is that it's not really clear cut. Um, and so sometimes there's, you know, it leaves room for some bias um, and potentially some unfair practices. Um, but I think it does affect um, uh, uh, underrepresented minorities in a different way because we often have other things that we're dealing with outside of the normal stressors um, of, you know, academia to deal with. And that's never factored in, you know, um, into the tenure process. So, um, yeah, that's a good question. I guess, can I ask you guys questions? Is that allowed? <laughs> and if you have questions, I don't want to, you know, interrupt you. But, I mean, I'd love to hear about what you guys are planning to do as a career. Um, if you know, if you don't know, I know some of you are rising seniors, so it would be great to hear, you know, and rising juniors, um, great to hear what, what your plans are next. Is anyone willing to share? Yeah, um, for me, I'm just really interested in genetics in general, but um, something that's caught my eye so far is like genetic counseling and possibly finding a way to work with um, Elsie as well. Mm -hmm. so. 
What is Elsie? Um, ethical, legal, and social implications in genomic medicine. So I can go next. Um, I want to get my MD-PhD and become a surgical oncologist, and I'm also interested in bioinformatics. So I both try the clinical and translational biology side, like combining my research interests with medicine. Yeah, there's a lot of support for, um, and by support, I mean programs that are being developed now to support that pathway, that career pathway. Um, so it's getting easier to do that, um, which, which is nice. And there's also more support, I think, maybe for genetic counselors as well. I'm interested in um, getting my MD, MPH, so looking into the public health aspect of it and tying that into medicine as well. What um, what particular public health do you know? Um, public I've always had an interest in like looking into epidemiology. So I guess studying how disease travels across the country. You know, especially right now. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we definitely need need more of you. Um, is that something that you're taking classes for right now? Um, no, not right now. But I'm. I guess looking into it. So this is my research process. So I guess looking into what goes into pursuing the MD MPH. So what that year in between, you know, your third and fourth year will, I guess, hold for me for that. Yeah. And you, you said an MD MPH, right? So you're going to do the MD component. My sister did um, not a combined program, but she did an MD and then did um, an MPH in... Oh. Uh, I think her MPH was in, I don't, I don't, actually, I don't think she specialized in anything specific. Um, and she is really glad she did. She feels like it does bring a, um, a unique component to her training in medicine um, and her ability to um, function as a doctor, <laughs> especially right now with COVID. <laughs> yes. so she's having to, you know, um, see patients um, and think about it from a public health perspective. So, I know she strongly encourages people to do that. It, it just gives it a new, a new perspective. Um, I'm happy to link you up with her if you're interested in talking to someone that has done both. Yes, uh, that would be great. Yeah. So it was a long time ago, but I'm sure she'd be happy to tell you sort of the pros and cons of doing that if you're interested. Okay, great. Thank mm -hmm. you. You're welcome. Hi, um, I'm Tyquasia. Right now, I'm very interested in genetic counseling, and that leads me to my next question for you, which would be, how did you go about laying your roots down in a new area? Um, I'm seeing that with genetic counseling, I will probably have to go like out of state to a university to pursue that. So how did you um, make that transition and really lay your roots down in a new place? Mm, yeah. Um, it's funny, uh, genetic counseling was something I wanted to do also when I was um, in undergrad. Um, so it's interesting that several of you are interested in that. Um, I think I ended up not doing it because there were so few genetic counselors and there was such a small need for them that I didn't see um, the ability to get a job afterwards. <laughs> so that was why I didn't go into it, but I do think it's pretty fascinating um, and a great you know, career path to go into. Um, so in terms of laying down my roots, so um, what has really helped me there was, you know, growing up, moving at a very early age, first of all, and moving around because we actually moved, hmm, I would say I have moved probably every five years throughout my life. So I've, I've never really lived in one place for longer than five years. And so um, as a child, um, that helps you acclimate to places pretty easily. So I had a, a little bit of an easier time because it wasn't like I was born, raised, did college in the same place um, and had to move. Um, it was a lot easier for me to sort of pick up and go. Um, I think the thing for me with moving now is finding out what are the things that make you happy um, what are your hobbies, I guess, or the things that you like to do outside of work? And are those going to be um, available in that new location? And how soon can you get plugged into them? Um, and I think having a healthy 
outlet or extracurricular activity is really, really important. Um, I think if you have children or a spouse or both, that does make it a little bit more challenging because then all of those people have to establish new roots in the new place. Um, But if you're moving as a single individual, it is easier. But I would say, you know, what are the things that make you happy? What are your interests, right, outside of research um, or outside of your career? And how can you plug into those? And finding those things before you move, making connections before you move, um, building yourself essentially a support system before you move, if you can, is always helpful. Um, So I enjoy exercising, I enjoy dance, um, I enjoy um, reading, um, uh, I enjoy going to church. So, you know, when I moved to a new place, a lot of the times I would find out, you know, what church am I going to go to in this new place? What um, gyms or exercise, you know, classes are available in this new place? Um, And... um, and so I do that ahead of time. Um, and then also just, you know, give yourself lots of time to explore before you move. Like, don't try to move and then jump right into your program. Give yourself a couple of weeks to adjust because it does take some time to figure out the lay of the land. Like, where are these things located? How long does it take to get them? If I'm on public transport, how do I get there? If I'm driving, you know, how long will it take? Um, I think that that's really important for you to settle in before starting your program. So when I have students that are moving to a new place, as much as I hate to see them go and I would love them to stay in the lab longer, I always tell them that I said, you know, give yourself two to three weeks to set yourself up. If you can afford it, um, give yourself a little bit of time to, to move and settle in before starting a program because different programs, you know, can be stressful. That can be stressful on its own. So why try to do it all at the same time? That doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah, I think those are kind of the two main things, right? Find your support network, find your research, your interests outside of, you know, your research and your career, and then also give yourself enough time to acclimate just to your environment and your surroundings before going into your program. Um, in terms of your work as a professor and like the places that you have worked, what type of support do they provide for you guys? Because as you said, like it's stressful and there's a lot of time management involved. And I know like that can sometimes possibly lead to burnout, things like that. So like what type of support do they provide for you guys? Man, um, let me think. You know, when I was, um, when I was going through undergrad and PhD, uh, yeah, and PhD and then postdoc, there, there weren't a lot of, you know, established support (laughs) networks or groups or opportunities, I had to kind of create my own or the group of people that I was with had to create my own. So um, as an undergrad, you know, we created a group that was mostly people interested in science and we got together and just discussed a lot of randomness, it seems like now, but it was mostly just to kind of get together and talk. and um, as a graduate student, um, like I said, there, there wasn't really um, anything, I think, as a graduate student, specifically for being an underrepresented minority. Um, now, being a graduate student, yes, there's, you know, the graduate um, school um, provides lots of training. And even at that time, there wasn't really a lot of support through the graduate school. Um, there was a group called TIBS that started up when I was and the last year of my PhD, and that also, that provided a lot of career development support, if that's what you're thinking about. So now there's a lot of programs that will provide support for career development. Um, If you have questions about different types of careers, if you have questions about, um, you know, just how to even make it through your graduate program, they can do that. Is that what you mean in terms of support? Are you just talking about career development or is there some specific type of support? Um, I was more speaking just in general, so any kind. That works? Okay. That works. <laughs> All right, yeah. So, yeah, so there's career development support. Um, there's obviously, um, there's support, you know, in terms of, like, counseling support if you need it. Um, as a postdoc, we started a, um, there's a, 
uh, postdoctoral um, council, and we started one that was specifically for underrepresented minorities um, and tried to start a mentoring program um, through that um, effort to support. Um, I think what you find is that, unfortunately, um, as you go higher up the ladder, there's a little less support. <laughs> there's a little less handholding, um, which is fine, you know, um, and so you end up having to find your own support. So there's a little less in terms of structured support. That doesn't mean there aren't people to support you. It just means it's less structured. It's not going to be a program, right? Um, but there are a lot of different programs, and I would say whatever stage of your career you're in, um, try to, um, you know, find out, um, I don't know, for undergrads, what would that be? You have an advisor, right? You have an undergraduate advisor. They can probably advise you on, you know, different types, access to different types of support programs. Um, as a graduate student, you have um, a director of graduate studies or a director of your graduate program. They will also direct you towards different types of support depending on what you need. Um, and the same as a postdoc, your postdoc mentor should be able to direct you towards support or there should be a postdoc office. Um, but yeah, as you go up, there's, there's less um, formal programs for support um, and you really have to seek them out. I would say the other thing you could take advantage of, um, there's different mentoring networks available now. And I don't know if that's something that, that Lana covers with you guys. Um, so sort of broader networks outside of your university um, depending on what type of support you need. Um, so if you're looking for something that is really aimed at helping underrepresented minorities, um, there is, um, I think it's, it's the National Leadership and Mentoring Network. There's so many, I can't keep, keep up with them. Um, I'm happy to look up some resources and send them to you if you're interested. Um, just to, uh, yeah, have, have Lana shoot me an email and I'll, I'll find the names and send them to you. Um, but I would say don't look just within your program or just within your university for support. There are tons of programs that are nationwide that you can join. Um, there used to be the, um, the Society of Black Engineers um, that also included other forms of STEM, not just engineering. Um, now, um, oh, there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot that you can take advantage of, but yeah, you got, you do have to look for it and reach out and um, initiate, you know, the process. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. So I have a question real quick. Um, so for, in your experience, what, what would you say it was like reaching out to people on your own? So let's say like somebody did not connect you to that person, like, um, sorry for the background. Did you go out of your way to like reach out to them? And what was the usual response when you reached out to people who were more of the higher ups? Yeah. Um, you know, it varies. Um, I think it depends on um, who you're reaching out to. There's times when you get no response. Um, and you need to write again. So I would always encourage you if you're reaching out to people I usually use a rule of three, right? I contact them at least three, three times, and then if they don't respond, I let it go. Um, there's also different ways to contact people. Um, I think nowadays, and it really depends on the culture, but nowadays people will send an email. Um, you can also try to connect with them at an event if you know they're going to be there. So um, there's different ways to contact people, and what I would say is, I mean, you do have to have a certain level of boldness and understanding that they may not write back um, and not be offended by that um, because people are really, 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 really busy. Um, there's some weeks where I'm unable to really answer any emails outside of, you know, the sky is falling type emails. Um, and that, you know, that means that things get unanswered and probably lost down the line and I don't get back to you. Um, but yeah, I think I would say, you know, try to send a very respectful email as a start if you're trying to contact someone. Um, and it always helps to tell them a little bit about yourself so they're not just getting a cold call from someone. Um, if you have a website or you have a university website or you have something that can reference you, 
Um, it's helpful to add that on. If you're working in a lab right now, it's helpful to say, I'm so-and-so from so-and-so's lab. Um, sometimes that helps. Um, but tell them a little bit about yourself um, and just be very respectful um, in your email um, and communication with them, no matter how they respond. Um, my experience has been that um, it really depends. There's been times that I've been pleasantly surprised because it doesn't matter the level of the person you're contacting, right? You could be contacting a peer um, at another institute and they could not get back to you. And then you could contact, you know, the vice provost for research and they write you back. It just depends on what you're asking for. Um, a lot of times on whether that person can identify who you are, because I get a lot of emails from very, very strange addresses <laughs> overseas, which are just junk, right? Um, and I get a lot of um, half English emails, which are not serious. And I'm not saying that because they're not speaking English. I'm saying that because it's very clear that it's a form letter that has been copied and not properly edited. Um, and so, you know, the time it takes to check emails, I get hundreds of emails a day and I'm an assistant professor. So the higher you go up, the more emails you usually get. Um, and so I cannot respond to all of those emails. Um, and so I have to selectively choose who can I respond to. And so the more well-crafted your email is, the more likely you'll get a response. I recommend if it's the first time you're writing those kinds of emails to reach out to people, have somebody else look them over, right? Have a, a mentor or even a colleague that has done it or peer that has done it before and has been successful at doing it. Have them look over your email and make comments. Don't be shy about getting feedback on your email. It seems like a really small thing, but that really small thing could play a really big role in getting you through the door because sometimes I get emails and they're a little offensive and I just don't write back. And I remember that person's name. <laughs> and if they were to come to me again later down the line, you know, it would be, um, and not offensive. I would say just um, people, people have very different email cultures in terms of what they say, right? So start with a header, end with um, an exiting signature, right? Don't just say, Dr. Adair Abdullah, da, 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 I want this, that, and the other, right? That, that's not gonna get you a response at all. <laughs> Um, and, um, so yeah, so, so keep in mind that, um, you know, you're not always going to get a response. That's okay. Try someone else. Um, but don't give up after the first try, try at least two times. And if you're bold enough, try three times. Um, I have had to email people three or four times to get responses from them, even now as an assistant professor. Um, and sometimes these are people that know me, right? <laughs> it's still hard to get them. So, but yeah, it does take some level of courage to do that um, and so you know cut yourself a little bit of slack but you still have to do it I mean that's just the way the world works um, most things are not going to fall in your lap you have to reach out for them um, you have to ask for them and you often have to initiate you know that requests um, and have to be okay with you know a little bit of rejection if it comes to that all right thank you you're welcome I don't think I heard what Katie wants to do next in <laughs> her career. Nervous. Katie, I'm right? a junior. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Yeah, I'm Katie. I was a little nervous. I was like, I'm not a junior yet, so I wonder if I should say what I want to do. But um, I've really liked engaging in this program because I've heard a lot about how genetic counselors work, but also how genetics, how far the research can go. And so I was kind of scared to admit, but like, I'm really interested in pharmacy and like, specifically drug therapy in rural areas because I come from one but I can just see like how in my undergraduate studies I still want to do research and things biology really still interests me so I really still want to engage in research and I also like hearing about how genetic counselors like go through their patients and they help them along so I just I like seeing it although it's not like specifically related to what I'm interested in right now I'm still kind of early in the game but yeah that's my those are my um, career aspirations and so I'm just trying to like explore everything to really see what's out there. Cool yeah I mean I have a student um, an undergrad student that works with me right now that's interested in pharmacy which has nothing to do with what I do but um, as I said I think it's really important in the beginning to get different types of research experience you never know um, uh, you know 
I started off with malaria research. I was positive I wanted to do, I wanted to do, because I couldn't do genetic counseling, I wanted to do human genetics, right? I went to do GWAS studies, which were really big at that time. And the human genome was being sequenced at that time. And so um, that's what I wanted to do. And I was so set on it, you know, and then I went into a mouse genetics lab and loved it. And it was completely different from what I envisioned doing. Um, but I really loved it. And I really saw how it fit into my broader picture of interests. Um, and so I ended up doing that. So I would say, you know, try to get some research experience and just put your best foot forward when you do it, even if it's something you end up never doing again. Um, the student I'm working with right now is, you know, studying adipocyte, adipogenesis in a mouse, which is, may not have a lot to do with pharmacy. There's a way to link it. But um, I told her that up front, and she was very interested still in just getting the experience and learning the lay of the lab, right? right. How does the lab work? How do I network with these people? How do I get funding? How do I write up my research study design? How do I, you know, write up my research results? So those are the kinds of things she's getting from me so that she can go on, you know, and apply that to her pharmacy. Um, but yeah, I think, I think try to get some research and there's a lot of, um, you know, novel things you can do with genetics and pharmacy if you so choose. <laughs> and I would strongly recommend doing it because I think that's the area where we most need genetics. Um, you know, there's a lot of genetics and disease, but we really need people studying genetics and pharmaceutical responses. I mean, mm -hmm. Dearly, <laughs> and Lana will probably agree with me on that because <laughs> there's just it's just not enough. It's not done enough, you know, in terms of drug trials and drug treatments. It's just mm -hmm. poorly, poorly, poorly handled right now, from my perspective. It's very much lacking um, in how people respond differently based on their genetic background. So, is that something that you cover, Lana? Uh, we haven't uh, talked together just as a group, but uh, when I present the last talk. <laughs> Uh, I'll just talk about some of the areas of disparities in genomic medicine research. I actually had a friend today who works for a clinical research organization who said their CEO gave a talk about how they're trying to increase diversity in clinical trials. Yeah. So it, it is really an issue that is needing to be addressed. It's a very big, big issue. There was, um, um, I never thought about it. I had a, a, a guy, actually I met at a, at a conference and he was studying why this particular drug was killing people in East Africa um, that had never shown the side effect in the clinical trial. Um, and it was killing people in East Africa. And he said, well, I'm going to try it out on a mouse population. And he used the genetically divergent mouse population. Um, I believe he used the DO population, for those of you who know it, um, and found that it killed, you know, a certain genetic background and was able to identify the gene that was responsible. And it was in this East African population, but unfortunately a lot of people had already died by then. Um, and I want to say it was, uh, it wasn't HIV. It might've been an HIV drug. Um, I can't remember what it was called, but um, it was kind of scary because that drug had already been released onto the market. People were using it, had been using it for years, were denying that it was contributing to the deaths and was one of those cases where, you know, that's really important research. And ever since then, that was maybe like five, six years ago, I was like, this, this needs to be studied. It's not my area of expertise, but it needs to be studied. So kudos to you. And I hope you find a way to incorporate some genetics into it. <laughs> So and if was, not, I won't judge you. <laughs> no, I love to hear that because I was like, I want to find that link. So it's so interesting. Like, I really want to look into that. Thank you so much. Yeah, there's people, um, and maybe Alana can connect you with them here at UNC, and I can too, if you want to shoot me an email, um, that are studying, um, I guess, what would that be called? Toxicogenomics or something like that? Pharmacogenomics. 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 Thank you. Um, and um, they'd probably be, you know, potentially interested in taking on a student <laughs> if, you, if you're interested in doing that. Yeah. I don't know. I can't speak for them, but you can always contact them and see what happens. Definitely. Thank yeah. you. Well, yeah. The time is now 102. We wanted uh, everyone, please join me in thanking Dr. Irabdullah <laughs> um, mm -hmm. for her time and her expertise and her advice. Uh, we will share your e email with the students. Um, so if you guys have any other questions, you can reach out to her and uh, we'll come up with a list of different um, um, resources 
for support or even conferences. Abercams is one conference. Uh, they're probably virtual now, but there could be conferences that you could attend as an undergraduate as well. All right, so uh, everyone say thank you and enjoy the rest thank of your you. day. Bye. Thank you for sharing. Thank you.